The following sermon is from Christ Church Port Orange. For more information, find us online at joinwithjesus.org. Thanks for listening. All right, open your Bible, if you will, to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. We are in a series from the book of Titus, a very short book in the New Testament, written by the Apostle Paul to one of his at least two protégés, Titus and Timothy. This one's obviously written to Titus. It bears his name. And it is instructions for building a foundation for the church in the first century on the island of Crete. The Apostle Paul and his, his uh, protege Titus were traveling to Rome, and they stopped on the Isle of Crete as they were sailing across the Mediterranean, preached the gospel everywhere they went. And it, in several cities all around the island, uh, people gave their lives to Jesus when they heard the good news uh, about the kingdom of God coming and the Messiah Jesus. And so we have all these churches popping up filled with formerly pagan and heathen people, a mixing of, of uh, Jew, ostracized Jews who are on this island. And it was, a, it was a strange little group of churches and it needed so much help that Paul left Titus behind to put into order that which remained. And he said, just as I told you, appoint elders, pick out leaders. They need to have these characteristics and then here's how I want you to teach and to model what it looks like to be a Jesus follower not only for those leaders and for those believers, but so that they might have an example to look to as they seek to bring uh, change, uh, reform, preach good news, demonstrate what it looks like to follow God on the island of Crete in their generation. Uh, Crete had problems and it needed a solution and Jesus was that solution. And you know that uh, Volusia County in the 21st century has got some problems. The state of Florida, you're like a little less, a little less so than other places maybe. I know everybody's been rejoicing and feeling a little bit more free in the state of Florida than elsewhere. We've got a number of people who are following from online. We're super grateful to be able to stay connected through our live stream on Facebook and YouTube, although we find ourselves being uh, significantly slowed down on Facebook. It has nothing to do with our equipment. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but something's going on. And so we appreciate for those of you switching over to YouTube so you can get a good feed. But uh, we're going to keep pushing that feed as long as it's available. And we are making plans to have our own feed so we're not relying on big tech and that good news. So coming to a TV near you. But I'm, so, uh, I'm, I'm just overjoyed and overwhelmed by the response we have from people uh, from different parts of the country. Uh, two weeks ago, in the middle of between two services, um, I'm standing in the lobby and a gentleman walks in and introduces himself. I've never seen him before, but I know his name. I know his name because he's a top fan on Facebook, follows our, follows our uh, services. His name is Bob. His wife's name is Sue. And they have never been to a Christ Church service. In fact, they were just traveling through our area at a time between services and stopped just to say hi. They recently retired from Maryland and now live in Shell Point, which is just in a little bit south of Tallahassee in the great state of Florida, but four hours from here. And so they just popped in to introduce themselves to say hi. And I knew them too also because uh, although they'd never been to a Christchurch service, when we started our generosity initiative to expand, they sent a check for $10,000 to help us build a building for people here in Volusia County. Now that is a transformation that only Jesus can bring. Can I get an amen? I can think of a lot of other things I could do with $10,000 besides give it to a church I don't go to. And yet they follow faithfully and are part of our family. And so thank you, Bob and Sue, uh, for your example. And this is just a picture of the kind of transformation that was happening in the first century, that is happening in the 21st century, and that we are called to be a part of. This book and this series is subtitled Blueprints for Building. We are expanding to make room for a growing church, but we want to make sure we are building a solid foundation on Christ and with the instructions that he gives us 
from the scriptures. And so here we are in chapter two. Uh, Last week, we looked at the importance of women as church leaders on Mother's Day in verses three, four, and five. And this morning, we're going to talk about what it looks like to be an old guy, an elder for the older men and an up-and-coming younger man. And this is a this is a community project. I don't know if you're like me, but um, I'm here in transition right now between younger man and older man. This is where I live. I'm right here. I'm straddling. I'm straddling 40. I'm 39. I'm hitting 40 this year. And it's so weird because I remember when my dad turned 40, we had black balloons. We had like this over the hill party. I was 13 years old. My dad seemed 90 when he was 40. He seemed so old. And now here I am arriving at 40, and I feel like the hat my dad bought for himself said. It said, I'm not 40, I'm 18 with 22 years of experience. That's what it said on it. And I don't think that ever goes away. The oldest member of Christ Church, Ted, who is live streaming probably with us this morning from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, I asked him when his birthday was. He says, I don't have birthdays anymore. I said, what do you mean? He said, I have anniversaries, and this year I'm celebrating the 53rd anniversary of my 39th birthday. (laughs) So something happens, because uh, age is kind of old, it's hard to nail down, isn't it? Your age is a number, but old is kind of a state of being, isn't it? And so here we are jumping into what it means to be an older man and faithful to the call of Christ, or a younger man and faithful to the call of Christ. So let's read this passage and jump right in. Verse one of chapter two. But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Get your beliefs right so that you can instruct how to live in according with the truth. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, Urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. God, we thank you for your word to us. It is alive and can do work in our hearts and minds. Lord, even a passage directed from a pastor to a pastor about a church and instructing people of various age groups and both genders. God, I thank you that your word is alive to us and that you have a message for each of us. God, I pray that as we find our place in the body of Christ and as we fulfill the call that you have, that we would be a part of building up the body, of bringing the kingdom Lord, that you have given us these blueprints for building means so much to us, and we pray that you would help us to implement them in a way that honors you, that strengthens each of us, and that ultimately transforms the world around us. God, we confess this morning our our minds are alert and our spirits are hungry, and we pray that you would speak to us. In Jesus' mighty name, 
And all God's people said, amen. 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 It's funny to talk about age. Uh, We didn't make a big deal about it, but today is the sixth anniversary or birthday of Christ Church. So we are six years old. Isn't that exciting? Five five years is considered viable. That's when they tell you, if you plant a church and you make it five years, you're going to make it. We're making it. And we're six. And uh, I told the team this week, uh, we're going to celebrate when we're 10. When we get to 10, we're going to go big. We're going to have a big party. And we talked about what we were going to do. We, uh, we had evaluated for this morning ordering cupcakes for everybody. That's what you want, a cupcake for breakfast. You're welcome. We had the idea of uh, getting helium balloons and bringing all the kids in and throwing the balloons around. And we thought, yeah, mayhem. That's a great way to celebrate. <laughs> Seeing kids darting off through fire exits would be great. Uh, and so we thought, hey, we're, we're six, so why don't we just say it? Here we are, six. Um, and so here, we're, we're also in transition. Churches grow and change. When you're part of a 30-year-old church, it's different than a six-year-old church, isn't it? And so here we are, young, nimble, agile, growing, and trying to figure out what we're doing and how. And so that's a good place to be. And here in this passage, uh, the Apostle Paul instructing Titus and instructing us uh, begins by speaking to the older men, moves to the older women, transitions to the younger women and to the younger men. This kind of creates a, a chiastic little structure. You'll notice that the majority of these verses speak to the training of younger women by older women, but there is a relationship. Uh, we are all in this together. Can I get an amen? Here we have the six things given uh, as instruction to the older men. And first, listen up, older men, here is how you ought to live. This is what you ought to look like. And then it concludes with younger men. And I love the fact that there are six things for the young, for the older men. There are four things said to the older women who are to train the younger women in seven things. And then we get to the young men, just one, just one thing. And I think this is a testament to the reality that God created women to be multitaskers. Do you know that? God created women to be multitaskers. Not all women, most women, all the women I know. And yet, for us guys, a lot of times we need to kind of focus on one thing at a time, especially when we're young and inexperienced. And so I love the the fact that in this list for young men, there's but one thing. But I want to start this morning kind of going through this list of what it means to be a visible example as men. And um, as you can see today, I wore a button-down shirt, tucked it in, and put on shoes. When I was a very young pastor, I invited an older pastor to come speak in my absence. In fact, I was present in the service, but I didn't have time to prepare a sermon, and so he came down and he was in his 60s at the time, and he was wearing a tie. And at the time, I was like, I was probably wearing shorts and a t-shirt and flip-flops. I was really kind of feeling my, my uh, boundaries as a young pastor and what was possible in terms of uh, outerwear. And uh, so he shows up, and he's wearing shiny leather shoes and a tie. And, and uh, everyone was like, whoa. And he said that he read a passage in Scripture that said, older men are to be dignified. And from that point forward, he started wearing a tie. So we all laughed. <laughs> Because that literally has nothing to do with it, and uh, he knew that as well. But let's look at these three things. The first of them, uh, sober-minded. Now, you may, you may have been following the series. The word sober continues to come up again and again and again. And in the, in the Greek, that's sophron or sophronidzo. There's a bunch of different versions of it. We see it over and over and over again in the book of Titus. Because uh, Titus was a small drinking island with a fishing problem. Uh, so... <laughs> So that was kind of rampant, and, and so Paul's speaking to like the fact that you can't have dignity, self-control, uprightness when you're just sloshed, you know, three sheets to the wind, 
Um, as I mentioned last week, nobody's going out on the weekend and doing good deeds because they drank too much, you know? And so this idea of sobriety continues to come up again and again and again. But this word is actually different, even though it's in the English, sober-minded in some of your translations. Uh, the word here is nephalios, and it is a word that is almost exclusively used to talk about the vigilance of a soldier on watch. And so there's this idea as older men that we are standing guard. I say we because I'm in. I'm just barely in, but I'm in. We are standing guard, that we are the ones on the watchtower who are paying attention to the coming and going of the deceitful schemes of the enemy. We are the ones who are paying attention to the trials, temptations, and tendency to those inside the church and without. We are the ones who are meant to be vigilant, to walk at, watch out for the misconceptions that invade and distract. We are always on call. And during our men's meeting this past Thursday, we had a conversation about alcohol because we were talking about this passage. And one of the guys who was there mentioned uh, how he started teaching a Sunday school class and he never was an alcoholic, but he kind of just stopped drinking altogether. And part of that was, if, I, if, I, if I'm teaching kids Sunday school and then they see me kind of walking out of the liquor store with a case of beer under my arm, like, what does that say to them? And how do they translate that? And so he just kind of said, I'm not going to do that anymore. And he just stopped drinking and hasn't had a drop since then. There's this idea, but he, he mentioned the word, he said that on call. He said he'd be on a business trip and everybody would be done with the day and having dinner together and ordering cocktails. And he'd say, no, not, not for me. Why? Because he's on call. When could I be called in? Now, if you have a job where you're on call, if you're a doctor or if you drive a tow truck or if you're covering someone's shift and you're off, but you could be on call, you know you have a totally different standard for how, how you're living and how checked out you are. And this word, particularly speaking to the old men, says here's one of the first things you ought to consider yourself to be, vigilant and on call. And doesn't that give you a temperance to the choices you make, to the disposition you have about yourself, to... To, to how you're paying attention and for whom you are being an overwatcher. So we're called to be sober-minded. Secondly, we're called to be dignified. I don't like that in the King James Version, they use the word grave. When you're, when you're dealing with being called an old man, the last thing you need to be thinking about is grave, right? <laughs> of course, that's not what the word means. Obviously, double meaning, same word. Uh, grave, but dignified dignified. Uh, semnos, the original language here, but the, the, the idea here is honorable. You know when the judge walks into the courtroom and everybody stands, the honorable judge so-and-so residing, presiding, whatever, and everybody sits down. And that was a thing people used to do to show someone honor who was an honorable person when they walked into the room, everybody stood. Anybody remember that? Remember ever doing that? Gone are the days. That's about as gone as everybody bursting into applause when their airplane lands. <laughs> Isn't it? You remember? I, I, I kind of have my earliest memories of being on an airplane and we had just had some serious turbulence my very first flight. And so when the plane landed safely, woo, everybody was clapping. And then by the time my 50th flight rolled around, people were like getting up and shoving other people and just grabbing their bag and standing all hunched over in the aisle like cattle. It's crazy. But I came back from um, Central America and uh, on a plane, it was me and like 130 Guatemalans. So nobody was hitting their head, you know, on the, just, just, just me feeling like Andre the Giant the gringo here and uh but we landed the plane landed and everybody burst into applause i was like remember that remember that they also served us a meal with actual silverware like a fork and a knife on this plane this was like 2011 this was not a long time ago this is definitely post 9 11 i remember holding a knife on a plane and i thought this is just a totally different experience than anything 
uh, in the States, such as traveling in the third world. All right, moving on. Uh, dignified, honorable, venerated for character. Do you carry yourself in such a way that, that people would honor you? Is there a distinction about you, older men, that when you speak your words have weight? Do you carry yourself in such a way that uh, you can't command, obviously, the honor of another person, but that you are respectable, that is the concept. And then thirdly, self-controlled. In the King James, that's translated temperate, which is a good one. This actually is that sober word, sophron, here, self-controlled, temperate. It has to do with having a sound mind and curbing one's passions. And so this is the, the kind of theme and word we're going to see as relates to young men, that this is a, an ongoing work. Um, you don't get to a point in your development as a man where you no longer need self-control. Can I get a shout out from the old guys in the house? Yeah. And so uh, the passions are present and it becomes uh, the maturity, the character that Christ works in us to be able to have control over those, uh, those impulses, those desires, as they influence our words and our actions, our attitudes. And so we're called to be self controlled, of sound mind, curbing one's passage. And then this idea is really expanded in three more ways that we're called to be sound in faith, in love, and in said fastness. Um, this word sound, it comes up a lot and it has to do with health, but it also has to do with, uh, with safety, return, and wholeness. Uh, did you guys grow up using the phrase safe and sound? Did anybody ever say that? That's an that's a English kind of rendering from the Greek in the King James in the story of the prodigal son. If you read that in the King James Version in Luke chapter 15, the celebration happens, and when the report is told to the older brother, it's told that your brother has returned home safe and sound. Whole. And so this is the idea that you are called to be whole in your faith, in your love, and in your steadfastness. Consider this sound in faith. All of us are on a journey of belief. You grow up in your family, in your church, religious environment, in school, and you're learning, you're growing, you're gathering information, and that's creating a foundation of belief for you, whether, whether you see that process happening or not. If you, you are here and you are still awake, uh, you have a belief system. So this word Faith is for every single person. This is not a thing spiritual people have as though non-spiritual people have reason and spiritual people have faith. There is no juxtaposition. Everybody has a belief system. The fact that you wash your hands to remove from them germs you cannot see so that you do not become sick means that you have faith. Do you know it? Because you can't see germs, but you can believe that they're there. You can evaluate the evidence and you can make a decision uh, in response to a belief system. And so everybody has a belief system, but is your sound is the question. Is your sound. And this is exceedingly important for the older men. So if you have a little bit of gray, a little bit of extra forehead, if you ever spray sunscreen on the top of your head, this is for you, all right? <laughs> is your belief system sound? Is it, is it connected to the truth? Has it been tested? So many people li living on this planet right now have a belief system established for them in an environment of activism, of influence. People these days, younger people growing up, are, are being told what to think, not taught how to think. You know that. 
Now, I feel blessed to have just gotten totally around that. My, my, my mom homeschooled seven of us children and still retained her sanity somehow. And so I did not go to public school, so I had a, a Christian education. And then I went to a community college for a couple years in the late 90s, early 2000s, and asked a lot of questions, got a degree, and forgot a lot of stuff. And then I stopped paying attention for 15 years and didn't watch the news and didn't watch cable television, and I don't care so much for pop culture, and so I still listen to classic rock and good music. Okay, so, <laughs> so here I am over here not paying attention, only to find out as I re-engaged how incredibly indoctrinated the world around me has become because people have been told what to think and not how to think. And I can confirm this to you because I'm currently finishing my undergraduate bachelor's degree and still, as a 39-year-old enrolled in college, I am being told what to think. And what I'm being told to think is ridiculous. You want to know who college tells you are the happiest people on the planet? The Chinese. Yeah. That's the happiest people. If only we could be as happy as the Chinese. Yeah, this is what I'm being told to believe. Yeah. The concept of the world becoming a better place is, is dependent upon globalization, borderlessness, and, and a benevolent but totalitarian government and economic system. This is what's being insinuated and taught. And for those who don't have a critical mindset, you would go, oh, wow. The more we can get this here, the better off we're all going to be. And we're doing little more than, take me to myself, are we? I heard it today from, or this week from the lips of a, a minister, how hard the season's been because we've, for, for the greater good, we've had to give up some of our freedoms. No, you don't, actually. There is no dichotomy between your greater good and your freedoms. They are gifted to us by God and ought to be preserved. Can I get amen? Without freedom, there's nothing. So the question is, are we sound in our belief system? So hold it out there, evaluate it, test it for, for, a, for a society of people who predicate their decisions based on the science. I mean, science is a process, is it not? It is the process of evaluating an idea against reality, aka data, hypothesizing and where your, where your idea is proven wrong, you make adjustments to the hypothesis until it is it's true, verified, and then it becomes a theory we can all bank on. That's the process of science. But science has become not a process, but an institution where there's a priest class of unnamed scientists who are telling us what we can and can't think and do. And that's ridiculous, utterly. So we're going to be sound in our faith. But that's not enough, um, because you can be right and also a jerk. <laughs> do you know that? Uh, are you on Facebook, anybody? Because... Um, don't read the comments. That should be the rule for the internet. Just don't. Just don't even bother. And please don't write the comments. <laughs> if, we could, if we could stop there. Remember when Facebook just had a thumbs up and that was it? That would be great. There's no comments at all. You can like it or you can leave it. That's your only option. Now I get accidental angry faces on every Christ church live stream. <laughs> like you guys don't know how this works. Um, or you're mad about something, but I can't figure it out from the icon. So <laughs> We're called to be sound in love. Does the way we treat other human beings coincide with what God says about their value, dignity, beauty? 
does the way we, the way we speak, the way we live, the way we act, the way we serve, the decisions we make, the impact those decisions have on the people around us, does that reflect the character and nature of God who is love? That's what it looks like to have a life that is sound in love. There's seven words for love in Greek. I wish we had more words for love in English because it's hard to say to your wife in a poem how much you love her and then at dinner to say how much you love pizza. You know? It seems like there ought to be maybe a different word, something available to us. But here we are. But the word agape, which many of you are familiar with in Greek, is the, the selfless love. It's the giving love. And this is what it looks like to be sound. This is what the call of older men is, to be sound in your belief system and in your charity. I like the King James says charity. It really puts it to, to uh, action. What are you doing with your life? Are you considered, do other people consider you a loving person? Not just because you say nice things and talk nice, but that you live a life of selflessness that you are taking the strength, the power, the capacity that God has given you as a man and you are giving it up and offering it to those people closest to you, your spouse, your children, your friends, your coworkers. Are you a person whose life is characterized by love? This is what it means to be um, an elder, an older man. This is the call. And then lastly, um, this has to go on and on. I love this word steadfastness or patience. We're called to be sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. You know, uh, we men, are, we're capable of doing anything for a minute, you know? Yeah, how many, <laughs> we're really good at like, uh, I'm gonna do this, and we go, and we go really hard, and we get, and we're like, yeah, I'm, I, was, I heard one comedian was talking about working out, he never works out, and he says, but when I do work out, I go to the gym, and I, and I, I get my workout in, and I go, I'm gonna work out every day. And then the next day, I'm like, well, not every day. <laughs> Gotta let my muscles breathe a little, right? And then the next day, I'm like, ah, I'm happy the way that I look, you know? <laughs> how, many, how many times do we live our lives that way where we have a, a grandiose aspiration and we're, we're committed to doing something, we start some new course, and how, I mean, how many of you guys have a journal with one page written in it, you know what I mean? Or a budget you planned in January that you didn't use in February to December and you're trying to find it the next January, like, um, there's a call for godly older men to be steadfast. To, have, to do the work of evaluating and, and constructing a sound belief system, to be sound in faith, to, to be committed daily to living in a loving way for the good of the people closest to you, and then to do that every day, as long as it's called today, I'm all in. And this just requires an everyday commitment. Uh, part of the reason two and a half years ago, I had this commitment, I thought it could be doable, and yet I found myself with a spiritual ADD, and it actually takes me uh, moments every single morning to connect to this reality and, and purpose it in my own heart. And even then, sometimes by the time the sun goes down, I've diverted. And so this is something that we've got to be committed to. It's got to be willing to go the distance. Hippomone is that Greek word that we see there. I looked it up in the lexicon. It was one I wasn't as familiar with. And the definition says, in the New Testament, the characteristic of a man who is not swerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith and piety by even the greatest trials and sufferings. That's beautiful. Not swerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith 
and piety by even the greatest trials and suffering. This is taking on new meaning for me. Uh, in, my, in my catching up to the understanding of the soft totalitarianism that is being pushed in our direction by an activist media and big tech, I am trying to get caught up on the history of totalitarianism. And so I started looking for books. I'm also trying to really understand the culture in which we live and the voices of those speaking because it doesn't do any good to only learn on one side of an issue. Can I get an amen? And so if you're not learning from those who have a dissenting view, then you're not learning. And unless you can apply what you believe to be true and sound to an opposite perspective, then you're not going to be convincing anyone. All you're going to be doing is creating an echo chamber for yourself. And so here I am taking all these different things in. And in this journey, I've kind of dived into some of the works of classic antiquity. And presently, I'm reading, undertaking to read the 1,800-page, three-volume um, Gulag Archipelago. So, and I, and I want to know this because why is it that as Americans, the only, the only totalitarianism that we're taught is the evils of Nazi Germany and its fascism and its Holocaust of six million Jews and, and the outcome of World War II? Why is, that, why is it that we're never clued into the 10 million people who were killed under the Iron Curtain of the Soviet Union? Why is it that we're not talking about the 60 to 100 million Chinese who were killed under Mao? Well, because the reason for those totalitarian governments are still very much in use, while the fascists are now our enemy. And so we, I want to understand, where, where did all this come from? How did it happen? And what is the perspective of those who lived through it? And so the author, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he died in 2008, and he has an incredible perspective as a Russian, and he was a soldier in the Red Army. He was carrying out Stalin's execution of the kulaks, the middle-class business owners who were being killed for having things and all of their wealth redistributed to the masses. That's what he did until he wrote a letter that was intercepted, and in that letter was a criticism of Joseph Stalin, and he was arrested without any charges and for 10 years was in a prisoner inside of concentration camps called gulags, and they were dotted all over the Russian countryside, right alongside people living their normal lives. And he endured the most incredible, torturous interrogations you'll ever read about, and you can read about them uh, for hours because he depicts them in great detail. And um, I was struck by a couple parts of this book, most notably a quote that I was very familiar with but did not know its origin, and that was uh, this quote, as he, as he reflected not only on the stories that he told, but he reflected on its meaning. He writes, Gradually it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart, and through all human hearts. This line shifts inside us, it oscillates with the years. And even within hearts overwhelmed by evil, one small bridgehead of good is retained. And even in the best of all hearts, there remains an uprooted small corner of evil. So I've, I've actually referenced part of that quote without understanding its context. But what really stuck out to me this week in my reading was the idea of steadfastness when he described how you make it through this experience in the gulags. And he said, this is what it takes. This is what you have to tell yourself 
in order to make it through this horrendous experience. You must tell yourself, my life is over. A little early to be sure, but there's nothing to be done about it. I shall never return to freedom. I am condemned to die. Now or a little later, but later on in truth, it will be even harder. And so the sooner, the better. I no longer have any property whatsoever. For me, those I love have died and for them I have died. From today on, my body is useless and alien to me. And then he says, only my spirit and my conscience remain precious and important to me. Solzhenitsyn refused to sign a confession he did not write and to turn over the names of people he would not condemn and was torturously interrogated for over 10 years before he was set free. And after that, hunted and came to America, to Vermont, to write these words and to provide them for posterity. Now, these matter because here's a man that learned steadfastness. And I pray that we don't have to learn it in the gulags. I pray that we can learn it in front of our Bibles in the wee hours of the morning. We can learn it when we understand what matters is truth, spirit, conscience, faith, love, And so do to me what you will, I shall not recant. This is the type of biblical masculinity that the church of Jesus needs, that the older women and the younger women and the younger men have to look to. And so I'm calling all old guys to a life sound in faith, sound in love, and sound in steadfastness. But I would be remiss if I did not take just a moment to talk to the young guys in the room. Can I get a hoorah from the young guys in the room? I guess not. Turns out out you're like slouching in your chair. The little bit of hoorah I heard, I think, was from guys with gray hair. So you're, we're in this together. We're holding it. We're holding on. To the young men, we read simply in verse six, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Same word we just, we just saw earlier. Sophroneo, sound mind, in your right minds, exercise, construct constraint and self-control. This exact phrase was used a couple times. Do you guys remember the story of Jesus and the demoniac where he meets a man who's crazy, naked, living in tombs, cutting himself, cannot be restrained, scares all the local children. Everyone has distanced themselves from him. And when Jesus steps off of a boat into uh, foreign territory, he is greeted by this crazy man naked and screaming at him, And you got to love Jesus because he's demonstrating in this section of scripture his power, his power over disease, over demons, and even over death as he raises Lazarus from the dead shortly thereafter. And yet in this encounter, Jesus, calm, cool, collected, begins to have a conversation, not with the man who is oppressed, who is possessed, but with his possessor. What's your name? I am Legion, for we are many. You like my creepy voice there? And so with just a word, Jesus exercises, casts out those demons from the man. They plead with him to go into pigs. The pigs, they go into the pigs. The pigs run off a cliff, kill themselves. It's a whole thing. You can read about it. But when the townspeople come out to investigate the situation about the lost pigs, which was their primary concern, what they found was the man sitting with Jesus, eating, clothed, and in his right mind. This is actually the call. I mean, self-control, you have to kind of pin it down somewhere. 
but this same word is used not to say this guy was being self-controlled. He was in his right mind. And so here we go back to kind of reevaluate all that we've heard. I think this can be a, a very helpful summation, not just a single, uh, you're not very capable, so we'll just give you one little thing on your to-do list, <laughs> kind of a, a command. No, instead, the concept here is that will you be, young men, will you be in your right mind? Will you also, along with your older counterparts, be on the track towards a life sound in faith that your belief system, always under evaluation, always being held up to the veracity of the truth, creating for you a foundation upon which to live and make decisions, not, 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 not in danger of being easily led away by a stick and a carrot into the hands of soft totalitarians who will tell you what to think and not how to think. Will you be of right mind? Will you be of, of right mind? Those of you who in your anger of injustice perceived and portrayed, you're willing to smash down the storefront window because you're so mad. Will you be in your right mind? Will you give yourselves to a life of love and selflessness, of peace, of, of steadfastness? Because this is actually where the power comes from. The power does not come from looting and burning and marching and violence. There is no power in that. You are simply a tool. But if you are urged by scripture and by those around you and by your pastors and teachers and preachers to be of your of right mind, give yourself to thinking, articulate the truth, speak with boldness, live with love and walk in steadfastness. Young men, this is where your strength and power comes from. This is where your trajectory will lead you to the place God wants to take you. Do you know it? I'm not gonna pick on you. I'd like to. I'd like to tell you to put your controller down and take control of this, is what I'd like to tell you, okay? I'd like to tell you to stop wasting your time on needless, stupid things and work on what's in here and what's in here and what you're doing with your life that's making the world a better place, starting with those right around you. I don't want to beat you up, but I do want to urge you to live self-controlled. In the Greek, this is four words, that's it. Four words. I love the word that's translated urge, parakaleo. Sometimes we see it as encourage, to coach. It means to come alongside and to shout. And that's what our young men need. They need moms and dads. They need mentors, men and women, who will come alongside them, going their direction, and say, you got this. That's right. You're doing well. There's far too little encouragement in the church of Jesus. And we need to be the people who point out when someone is making smart choices, when someone is giving themselves to a worthwhile endeavor, when someone is working hard, and yet on the cusp of giving up, say, no, you can do this. And so those are the kind of people we ought to be. When I thought about this one verse to the young men, and I thought about the meaning of this word of sound mind. Instantly, the King James Version of Proverbs 23, 7 came to mind. You're probably familiar with it. There's been a million sermons on it. As a man thinketh in his heart, so he is. Except, and that sounds beautiful, but it doesn't mean that at all. So back up with me. We'll do a little exercise in soundness of faith, right? So we'll use the ESV, not the King James, Proverbs 23, 4 to 7. These are little quips about how to act based on what's going on. And so the first one in verse 4 says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. What's this, what's this saying? This says, 
working 100 hours a week to get money, you're wasting your life. You hear that? But we're all money hungry because we think money buys us stuff, stuff buys us happiness, gets us power, takes us to the next place. The more money we make, the happier there will be. That's a, that's a common American myth, isn't it? And so you work and you work and you work and you work and you work. And when you get all your money together, you turn around and your grandkids don't know you. And forget the kids because you weren't there. And so the Proverbs say, do not acquire wealth through toil. Be discerning enough to desist, to go, no, I'm done. I'm checking out, turning the phone off, not checking the email. It's time for me to focus right here. And I need this message like anybody else. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Do you know where all your done work goes? No, nobody does. You get stuff done and you never think about it again. You're on to the next one. Aren't you always on to the next one? I bet you can tell me all kinds of things about the deal in front of you, men. But what about this last 17? The details have flown away because they don't matter. So that's one of the Proverbs. Now look at verse six. Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. This is good stuff. Do not eat the, man, the bread of a man who is stingy. Do not desire his delicacies, for he is like one who is inwardly calculating. This is the same rendering of that same passage. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. And here's the picture of, if you have a cheap friend and you go to his house, and he's so stingy that he cares about his stuff and not you. And he's literally watching you eat with big eyes going, no, help yourself. And he's counting the chicken wings as you consume them. <laughs> You're like, see eight bones there? Eight, really? Couldn't stop at a half dozen? Do you see how many people are here? You know how much those wings cost? A dollar four a piece. Those are Wally wings. <laughs> but he doesn't say those words, does he? He says, eat and drink. And so it's, uh, it's unusual and unfortunate to, to have it read, as a man thinketh in his heart, so he is. But the idea here is, listen, that guy is stingy, not because of what he says, but because of the thoughts that he's having. Do you see it? And so it's part of the universal principle that you could say this way, but that's not actually what the passage is talking about. I love the way Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 says it very clearly. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the call for every Christian person. This is my urge to young men. This is the call for the older men, that we would not allow the loudest voices to shape the way we think and feel and speak and do. Can I get an amen? We will not be conformed, put into a mold, but instead we will be transformed by the word of God for it stands true that as a person thinketh, so he is. It's not so much about what we say, what we put on, how we act, the, the projection of ourselves we put forward. It's what's happening right here. And so we wanna be young men of sound mind. And so the phrase I use always comes back to identity for me because what shapes my life is what I believe about myself. When I feel like I have to prove to somebody that I'm worth listening to, then I take a course to prove it. When I am thinking I am undereducated, underqualified, undergifted, I end up on a course of doing things for the wrong reasons or giving up. I'm not. I can't. I won't. But the reality is, for those of sound mind, 
that as we every day connect with God through his word and through prayer, we hear the overwhelming voice of his Holy Spirit saying, not what you are not, but what you are. Do you know it? You are redeemed, cleansed, forgiven, strengthened, empowered, and called. That's what you are. And the list goes on. And when you begin your day in soundness of mind, strengthened in the truth and reality to be sound in faith and love and steadfastness, this, brothers and sisters, is where you will all live your days saying, I am, I can, I will. And this is what the church of Jesus needs. Young and old, male and female, people every day, strengthened in their minds, sound, willing, and active. Every day I read this, say this to myself, I am created in the image of God, loved by him as my father, accepted by him in his son Jesus, and empowered to live for him by his Holy Spirit. There is nothing he calls me to do that I can't. I am, I can, I will. This day and every day. So let me wrap up. Let me actually ask the worship team to come up. This matters because, these, not just because these words matter, we spent some time on these words. But this matters because of what's actually going on all around us. Um, it's frightening to me as I continue to delve into the terrors of Soviet Russia in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and, all, and, and forward. It's terrifying to me. And yet we actually aren't in danger of those same sets of terrors. Our terrors are very different, and yet they are terrors still. But it is not primarily about the, um, the American tyranny that we're enduring or its effect on religious liberty in our not-so-distant future. That's not the biggest context. The biggest context, Paul reminds us, uh, as he calls those on Crete to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Uh, one of the books I just finished reading that I recommend to everyone, it's how I got to Solzhenitsyn's uh, Gulag Archipelago, was a book called Live Not by Lies. I got a picture of the cover for you. It's by Rob Dreyer. Live Not by Lies. Its title comes from an, uh, a short essay that Solzhenitsyn wrote in the 60s. And so Live Not by Lies. It's actually a manual for Christian dissidents. So I'm prepping for revolution. That's what I'm doing. Just so you, just so you, fair warning, everybody. I'm learning how to do this right. Because when the time comes, um, I am willing to stand for truth. I'm willing to stand for love. And I'm willing to be steadfast no matter what that means. And so in my journey of learning, this is one of the books that I read. And oftentimes, uh, people of a more totalitarian persuasion, even Christian variety, and there are many, they will appeal to passages like Romans chapter 13 and even Titus chapter 3, where it says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and ready for every good Work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And so this sounds like just enjoy your serfdom and do what you're told. And so we ask the question, when do we dissent? When do we object? When do we stand up and say no to an overreach, a mandate? The passage goes on to reach back to where we came from. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And this is just a picture of what a lost world looks like, and there are lost people in it, and we used to be one of them. Can I get an amen? 
but that is not the narrative because in the narrative there is a larger picture, a meta-narrative that we all assent to every day that we are a part of that is the basis of our faith and it is this. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And there is nothing more real than that. That is the paradigm-setting reality. That is what we stand in and what we are committed to. That is what we must fight to defend, and that is the good news that we will proclaim at all costs. And these are rights given to us by God, gifted to us. We only acknowledge them and then work to preserve them for others even when they are misused. This is what it means to be a true liberal. Do you know that? And so we're learning what it means to stand in the gap right now. But men, I'm calling all men to learn what it means to be sound, faith, and love, and in steadfastness. To wake up every day oriented towards the greater meta-narrative. To be a person connected by faith to Jesus. To have the life-giving spirit of God within you. And to stand up for truth with love and to go the distance. If you're willing to do that, if you're willing to give your life to that, The fruit of that is incalculable. And that, I believe, is what will persuade the culture, the world, the politics, everything that we're looking at and trying to sort out. It actually doesn't start out there. It starts right in here. And so we will continue to urge younger men to be self-controlled, to remind older men that you are called to be dignified, grave, temperate, self-controlled, and to be sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. We in this together? And let us pray. God, I thank you that you are the steadfast one, that you have built for us a foundation upon which to stand, and not even the foundation of our faith, but the foundation of Christ himself. God, thank you that you are the one who opens eyes to see who illuminates the world and your word that we might be of sound mind. God, I pray that you would strengthen a generation of men from 10 to 100 to stand for truth with love and go the distance. Holy Spirit, would you do your work in us? Would you show us where we've stopped evaluating our worldview, where we've stopped short of love, we've given ourselves to the meaningless and I pray God that you would do in our hearts and minds by your spirit a transformation that is a miracle but one you will do for us in Jesus mighty name let's stand as we close